0: Dear Lord, thanks so much for your goodness. And we thank you that you are on the throne. And uh, that's all we need. Just to know and to embrace and to acknowledge that you're on the throne and to respond accordingly. Lord, thanks that you love us so much. Thanks, Lord, that we don't have to go through some religious exercise or some religious tricks or, or jump through any hoops, but that you've done all the work for us to have sweet fellowship with you. And so, Lord, today we just want to enjoy that. We want to read your word, and we want to hear from you, and we pray that you just have your way with us, Lord. So please guide us and lead us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 51. Check it out. Today we end the book of Jeremiah. Is that all you got? You can't decide whether to clap or not, yeah. right? Is that it? Like, do I clap because it's done, or do I clap because it's? I'm just I'm just saying it. So today we end Jeremiah. Um, oh, here I'll give you this. So next week we next week we start Lamentations. Okay. And then after that, we'll go to 1 Thessalonians, (laughs) which, um, and you can be praying about this seriously. I was talking to Tracy about this this week. As you might imagine, I've had a lot of, uh, I've heard a lot of conversation, had people ask, what do you think, and you know, about end times issues, right? People are always talking about end times issues. They probably always have, and Thessalonians will prove to us that they always have okay and so clearly i believe we're in the end times we're more in times than we were yesterday we're not as in times as we will be tomorrow that's all i know right because jesus said it's all he knows right and and yet there are some things to learn about you know and if you think about it this applies to so much of our life right we live with a, with a plan for the future. I don't care if you're talking about raising kids or, or going to heaven or anything in between. We live with a plan for the future, and yet we live in the moment. Does that make sense? And... I, I get this messed up all the time, right? I, I'm, I'm prone to. I think we all are to some extent or another. But sometimes we can live so much in the moment that we neglect the future, right? And sometimes we live so much in the future that we neglect the moment. Is that fair? And so all I'm saying with that is there's a balance there, right? And, if, and we want to not neglect the events of the end times, right? But we want to not neglect the moment. What an opportunity we have in the moment, day by day today, in our world today. And so, that's that. That's your teaser for Thessalonians. Right. Right. So with that, let me just say it again. We're going to go to Thessalonians in a few weeks. All right. Okay? All right. There you go. So, but before we do that, we're going to wrap up Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 51, we start today. Chapters 1 through 45 of Jeremiah was God's message to the kingdom of Judah, uh, which was the southern remnant kingdom of the nation of Israel. Chapters 46 through 51 were God's message to the surrounding nations, 50 and 51 of which were devoted to Babylon. Babylon. And so we talked about we started about Babylon last week. I'm going to kind of recap that briefly, and then we do chapter 51 to talk more about Babylon, and then chapter 52 is really just almost a summary statement on the book of Jeremiah. And basically, it's, it goes back takes us back to the fall of Jerusalem. So it might seem a little disjointed uh, from 51 to 52. Let me just say before we get there, because I know you're, I know how you are, okay. When we get to 52, because it's a recap of chapters that we've already read, uh, actually several times, uh, we're going to blow through chapter 52, okay? So when you look up at the clock and it says, you know, 11.55, and I say chapter 52, verse 1, don't panic. Trust me. As I've told my wife for over 30 years, trust me. Trust me on this one, okay? And... You now have the same. Now you know what my, how my wife lives. Okay. Your, do I really trust him? See, demonstrated credibility in that area? Yeah. Five minutes on chapter 52. Ready? Yep. So Babylon started by a man named Nimrod early in the book of Genesis. And it was the city of Babel. And we may know that there was a tower built that we call the Tower of Babel. Remember that? Tower of Babel is the beginning of the nation of Babylon. And we think of that as its beginning. And what was the Tower of Babel? It's when, a, it's when Nimrod rallies a bunch of people together. Kind of in a one world sort of unified kind of a way, right? And says, we're going to build a tower that will reach to the heavens. And it seems like not a big deal, but really what it is is we're gonna build a tower to reach to the heavens so that we don't need God, okay? So it seems like an ambitious building project is really an in-your-face, defiant rebellion against God. But my point I wanna make that I made last week, I wanna make again today is what sometimes seems like no big deal is really the onset of rebellion. Fair enough? Then you take Babylon through the Scriptures, and we find Babylon at the end in Revelation chapter 18, where in Revelation chapter 18, it's described as a harlot. It's described horribly. And really, what, it, what it's describing in chapter 18 of Revelation and, and elsewhere, uh, as it leads up to that, really the fall of Babylon is chapter 18, but it starts early on. During the tribulation period, is a worldwide system, and I say this a worldwide system of sort of economics and sociology and uh, government, and it's kind of a big, like, just worldwide system. And think of that as a system. Think of Babel as a tower, think of Babylon as uh, Revelation Babylon as a system. Some people will say different commentators say whether well, there's actually a city of Babylon that corresponds to that system, but, but clearly whether there is or is not a literal city there of of Babylon. Really the point is it's the system of Babylon. It's a world system that the world will engage in that's really just an extension that started all the way back in the Tower of Babel. Make sense? And what we find in between there is historic Babylon that we read about during the days of Jeremiah. All right? Fair enough? Now, you say, what is that Babylonian, what is that system Babylon in Revelation? And I told you already, we're talking about end times, and I believe we're in the last days and all of that. You know, know, there's going to be things like a mark of the beast. You've heard people talk about the mark of the beast, right? Well, the mark of the beast is kind of the Babylonian system by which, you know, you got to have the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell stuff, right? Now, in the days that the Apostle John wrote that, in the first century A.D., I'm sure John thought, what? But he just wrote it down out of obedience. But we read that now, and you're like, mark of the beast. Well, that's kind of curious. And I remember back in the 90s, I was sitting in church, much like you guys are today. And I remember my pastor standing up and talking about, you know, they're coming out with chips on these credit cards. And he said, watch out for those chips. You know, because that's just headed towards Babylon. You know, next thing you know, you're going to have chips in your arms and your forehead. And that's how you buy and sell stuff, you know, by these chips. Well, Apostle John didn't know anything about chips, right? And I remember talking to Tracy you know we're driving our way home and you know analyzing the sermon like you guys do on your way home and, uh, and I said that was awesome like you guys do on your way home but no I said uh, I said uh, I said man he's paranoid chips really come on I could still use cash right well fast forward a couple of short decades right try renting a car today with cash right? Good luck, right? Try doing a lot of things with cash. Good luck. What's on your card? Try swiping your card for the, you know, with the stripe on the back of it, right? What do they tell you? It's, It's a chip card now, right? You know, you put a microchip in your dog so it doesn't get lost. Is there anything sinful about putting a microchip in your dog? No, anything, sin- anything sinful about sw- you know about using a chip on your credit card to buy a cup of coffee? No, it's nothing sinful about that. But the point is, we can say, "Oh, I could sort of see how that might happen, right?" And people, and people, I don't want to get into any controversy, uh, you know. But people asked me over the last six months, you know, when vaccine mandates were a big deal. You think the vaccine's a mark of the beast? And I would say, no. But just like the chip is not sinful to use, right? Can you foresee a situation where there's a worldwide problem that needs a worldwide solution and the easier way to do that would be just give you a little shot or a little injection or a little chip? Is it conceivable? Oh, it's way conceivable. Is it more conceivable than it was 20 years ago? Way more right? And what is that? That's Babylon. That's the system. That's the world system that is setting itself up to where humanity can basically be ushered into it, and humanity finds themselves having a hard time living and operating outside of that system. Is that fair? That's the bad news. Good news is, I believe with all my heart, the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation. So the stuff, all that Babylon system stuff is uh, during, the, during the tribulation, right? So I like what Chuck Smith used to say. You can tell when Christmas is coming, right? I'm sorry, I got it backwards. You can tell when Thanksgiving is coming because there are Christmas decorations at Lowe's. Right, And so we can tell Except now you can tell When like the 4th of July is coming Right because they start putting up The Christmas decorations at Lowe's Right And so you can kind of tell when The, tribu- when the rapture is coming I mean you can't Jesus, knows, Jesus said Nobody knows the day or the hour But you can see the rapture getting closer Because you see things that are going to take place in the tribulation You can kind of see them start to conceptualize a little bit Does that make sense? So that's Babel. That's, I mean, that's Babylon. Where did it start? Where did it start? Babel in Genesis. It started in the Tower of Babel. Okay? And it's rebellion. So two take-home points I want to make for, for God's people today. And that is beware of just trying to build a tower Hey, I'm just trying to build my own tower. Hey, I'm just trying to do my thing. Hey, I'm just trying to accomplish some things. I mean, hey, I'm try- just trying to make a name for myself. Hey, I'm just trying to find my significance. Hey, I'm just trying to, um, uh, to do my thing. If it's that without the Lord, it's rebellion. It's the, it's the starting point of rebellion. Does that make sense? That's the point I want to make. It ends with the fall of a harlot in Revelation chapter 18. But it starts with, I want to make something of myself. And to make something of yourself without the Lord is rebellion. Okay? And Samuel told Saul, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Okay? That's point number one. Rebellion starts at the Tower of Babel point number two if you find yourself in that system or if you find yourself in that state of rebellion in any way I'm not saying if you're using a chip or if you microchip your dogs or you know whatever like that but I'm saying just recognize it for what it is and if you find yourself too caught up in the world system so much that like you forget about God what's the message that God has for his people he says come out my people come out of her. And he'll say that, repeat it. We see that in Revelation chapter 18. He says, come out of my people, lest you share in her sins. Chapter 18, verse 4 of Revelation. But he says that actually three or four times during these chapters that we read, during these verses in chapter 51. Fair enough? Chapter 51, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Leb kamai a destroying wind and I will send winnowers to Babylon who shall winnow her and empty her land for in the day of doom they shall be against her all around against her let the archer bend his bow and lift himself up against her in his armor do not spare her young men utterly destroy her army thus the slain shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans and those thrust through in her streets and so what Jeremiah is prophesying here is historic Babylon is going to be destroyed by the Medes and Persians. And we've talked about that a little bit before. This word Lebchemai is likely a poetic reference for Babylon. And he uses a, a... an example that would have been very relevant to the folks in those days. They would winnow, uh, what they call the winnowers, that basically is, a, is, is how they would separate the the wheat from the chaff. Right? You get a big wheat harvest, and you bring it into the barn, and you kind of lift, you know, you kind of throw it up in the air, right? And the chaff would blow away, and the good wheat would fall to the ground because it's heavier. It makes sense. And so what he's saying is, yeah, you you throw up the, you know, you throw up the bab- throw up Babylon, and basically. There's going to be nothing left, right? Uh, a destroying wind. I'll send uh, Babel. I'll send winnowers to Babylon. They're going to winnow and empty her land, like it's all chaff. There's nothing left good in Babylon. He says, "For Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah by his God, the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel." Now, this is important prophetically as well. Now, again got to keep yourself in the mindset here. By, by the time this is written, right, Babylon uh, has captured Judah. And uh, so this would be written to uh, partly, at least for the encouragement, of the captives in Judah, or I'm sorry, in Babylon, the captives from Judah in Babylon. They want to know that God hasn't forsaken them, right? If you're carried off by, if you're carried off by Babylonians and you're, you're in captivity over there, and you're wondering, where's God? Have You ever wondered, where's God? You ever been in a situation where you say, where's God? People say that all the time. Where's God in this situation? Might seem like God has forsaken us. Has God forsaken us? No. Has God forsaken his people? No. He hadn't as of this point. And to be fair, just doctrinally, there are some that would say, yep, God, God took the Jewish people and he cast them aside, and he has replaced them with the church. Well, there's an important distinction between the church and God's people, the Jews, okay? And he has not cast them aside. We see in the New Testament, uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says this, I say then, has God cast away his people, meaning the, the Jewish people? Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. If God's cast off the Jewish people, he cast off the Apostle Paul, right? You think the Apostle Paul's in heaven? Anybody want to make a bet on that? I bet he is, right? Of course he is. And so Paul's saying, I'm a Jew. God hasn't cast off his people. And so uh, to the captives in Babylon, God would say, uh, you're not forsaken, Verse 6, flee from the midst of Babylon, and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. And so here's the message to the Jews that are in Babylon, captive. God is saying, you know what? The Medes and Persians are going to come, and they're going to conquer Babylon, and they're going to release the the captives. Is that exactly what happened in Ezra chapter 1? Yes, it is. It's exactly what happened in Ezra chapter 1 historically. You know what's interesting about Ezra chapter 1? It, it, it gives a number of the captives that returned. And you know what? You want to guess what happened? A small percentage of them actually left Babylon. It's a great picture and lesson and honestly admonition for us today. And that is this. When those Jews went to Babylon as captives, So they go there as captives. You know, Jeremiah said, hey, when you get there, settle down, build houses, you know, get used to it. You're going to be there for 70 years. And some of them did get used to it. They said, you know what? Idolatry's working for me, right? Babylon's kind of a cool place, right? Got hanging gardens, got big walls. It's kind of an okay place. I can settle in here at Babylon, right? Right? And then, you know, imagine this. The Medes and Persians come in. Cyrus says, all right, all you Jewish people, you're free to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, What happened when we left Jerusalem? What's what's the state of Jerusalem? It's in shambles, right? What's it going to take to go back to Jerusalem? It's going to take some grit. It's going to take work. It's going to take some diligence. It's going to take some perseverance, it's going to take a pretty hefty desire to go back and worship the God of Israel, to rebuild that temple, to do all those things that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. That takes a lot of energy. And by the way, there's enemy people over there. You read that in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? And doesn't this apply to us today? There's some t- sometimes there's a temptation to say, boy, you know what? It'd be easier to just chill here in Babylon with the Babylonians. Do you get this? Please get this. Please get this. Step one of rebellion is it starts in Babel. Don't Don't start there. Step two of rebellion, as it applies from the lessons I believe in this chapter, is if you're in Babylon, just recognize it's pretty tempting to settle there. Pretty tempting to settle there, hang out. You know, Babylonian worships. Those churches in Babylon aren't all that bad, right? Those guys mean well, right? Idols? Eh, God's a little too uptight about that. God's old-fashioned. A lot of money in Babylon, right? A lot of good stuff in Babylon. There's probably chocolate in Babylon, Right? Right? What's God say to those people? Get out of there. Get out of there. And spiritually, I hope we see the the lesson here, spiritually, if we're in Babylon, and I'm not talking about if you use a credit card or if you microchip your dog, I'm just talking about spiritually, if we're stuck in Babylon so much that we can't see Jerusalem, that we can't see the temple, that we can't recall with, with great fondness, the place where we've been spiritually, we're in danger. We're in great danger. And so God is going to say over and over, get out of there. So here he says, verse 6, flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. The danger of Babylon is it slowly and gradually and seemingly no big deal sucks us in. To its system so much that that becomes our normal right that's the danger of Babylon Jesus said we should be in the world but not of the world and the danger of Babylon is it sucks us in so much that it becomes our normal and so much so that when the historical Babylon was overthrown only a remnant went back Those guys like Ezra, those guys like Nehemiah, those guys that had the spiritual oomph to go back, they're the ones that went back. Everybody else just kind of chilled in Babylon. Verse 7 Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. So Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed Wail for her take balm for her pain Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she's not healed Forsake her and let us go everyone to his own country for her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies The Lord has revealed our righteousness come and let us declare in Babylon the work of the Lord our God now This is important to see We've talked before with prophecy, there's often a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. And oftentimes when you read something prophetic, you can say, oh yeah, that was fulfilled, right? Like Jeremiah said, uh, the Jews are going to be captive in Babylon for 70 years and then they're going to come back. Sure enough, that actually happened. But there are other things that we see in prophecy that weren't fulfilled historically and maybe even haven't been fulfilled as of today. And that's what we see um, with some of these um, situations. Not all of this; these verses 7 through 10 can be explained historically. It talks about Babylon falling, uh, suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Interestingly, when, when the Medes and Persians came in under King Cyrus, they didn't totally destroy Babylon. As a matter of fact, the next empire to come after the Medes and Persians was uh, the Greeks with Alexander the Great. And when he came in and took over, right, Babylon's still kind of a kind of a palace, and he kind of sets up home base there, right? And so um, it was not actually destroyed suddenly, but someday it will be, Revelation chapter 18. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. What do we read in uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 10? It says Babylon's going to be destroyed in one Hour, one hour. Now, again, go back to that Babylonian system where you know everything's technology and computer chips and and world system and economic system and political system. Can you envision that being uh, hacked to the point that it falls in an hour? Yeah, for sure, for sure. If you've been involved or or a recipient of a of a hospital hack pretty easy to visualize, right? Trust me. It's easy to visualize. Babylon's going to fall in an hour. Revelation chapter 18. I believe it's going to fall in a literal hour. Whatever that is, however that, however that rolls, however that plays out, I believe it's going to fall in a literal hour. Verse 11, make the arrows bright, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. Again, the Medes and the Persians are going to come against Babylon. For his plan is against Babylon to destroy it because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. Set up the standard on the walls of Babylon. Make the guard strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both devised and done what he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters abundant in treasures, your end has Come, the measure of your covetousness. The Lord of Hosts has sworn by Himself: Surely I will fill you with men as with locusts, and they shall lift up a shout against you. And so, um, you know, earlier in Babylon's history, the Medes joined up with the Babylonians to defeat the Assyrians. You may recall the Assyrians were the ones that carried off the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Well, now the Medes are joining with the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. So. Um, Uh, Be careful who you make your alliances with. Cyrus was a Persian. Um, His mother was a Mede. So I don't know if that's why the connection is there, but it is. So when the Medes and the Persians come in, uh, the Babylonians are going to try to gather their shields. See there verse 11. They're going to try to make ambushes. uh, Verse 12. They're going to try to uh, rely on their great treasures. Verse 13. None of that is going to work against the Babylonians. Doesn't that apply to us even today? Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17 says, No weapon formed against you, against God, will prosper. You ever notice this? There are lots of weapons that are formed against God in the world. In world history, there have been lots of weapons. A tower of Babel was really a weapon against God, right? We don't need God. We can build a tower, right? And so, that, you know, weapons are not always guns right? Weapons have lot, takes, take lots of forms. And in, the, in Genesis, a weapon against God was a tower. Did it work? No. These ambushes, these treasures, you know, sometimes we can, in our rebellion, we can store up treasures. Jesus said, don't do that. That's where moth and rust destroy, right? Now, you know, if, if our treasures are a means to, to say, I don't need God, then that's a weapon against God, and those won't stand. Those won't prosper. And so, uh, no weapon against God will prosper. Verse 15, he has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. So again, you got to see the historical setting here. Babylon is the world-dominating empire at the time. They think they're invincible. Jeremiah's message is, you're not invincible. Right? And even today, there are, kingdoms, if you will. There are governments that think they're invincible, right? Is any government or kingdom or system invincible against God? Not at all. And here's what I think is interesting. One of the ways we can kind of keep that in mind, and one of the ways, again, if you go to the Babylon system of Revelation, one of the things is, you know, we can do our thing without God. Now, in my mind, one of the best ways to take God out of the equation is to take him out of creation. You hear me? You hear me? I know if you've been around for more than 10 minutes, you've heard me harp on this. Well, I'm going to harp on it again. The best way to take God out of the equation is not like whoever it was that said, God is dead, Right? because we all kind of mock that, right? Well, you know, it seems like God is there, you know, even worldly people talk about the force and the man upstairs and it seems like there's some, you know, uh, some spiritual element to this existence. But God couldn't create the world. Right? What did you just do when you just said God couldn't create the world? You knocked knocked him out from under his knees, right? Or however that phrase goes. That was a butcher of a phrase, right? You knocked his knees out from under him, whatever you did, right? You removed his strength, right? If I worship a God that can't create the world in six literal days, I worship a God that's sort of reliable that make sense if I have a bible that I have to undo honestly the most foundational couple of chapters in it it's starting point if I have to unwind or unravel those first couple of chapters to make him fit into my grid or into my worldview. I've got a weak God, and I want to just call it what it is. We need to reject that, because I worship a God who is who, he is who he says he is, who does what he says he does, and he's done that, and therefore, he will continue to do that. How in the world can I rest my life and my future on a God who I had to undo what he says about his past? Right? And so when you're talking to the Babylonians, know this. When God's talking about his power, and by the way, Babylon, you think you're all that. Well... The Medes and Persians are going to come in and thump you. And this is part of the evidence that I'm going to give you. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. God did all that. And he continues to do all of that, right? God created the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I remember, I've said this before, but I remember talking to a skeptic years ago. And he said, you know, I just couldn't get past the first page of the Bible. And I appreciated that honesty. Because what he said was, I'm a skeptic because I can't get past the first page. What I hear more often is, now, I'm a believer, but I don't believe the first page. Can I tell you that's just inconsistent? That's just inconsistent. That's that's a that's an illogical approach to scripture. Because if you can't get because if you have to undo the first page, you've got to undo the whole thing. So you can't piecemeal the scripture. It's either all true or it's all false. And I would tell you it's all true. Everyone is dull-hearted, without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so, you know, God does this throughout Scripture. He he sort of mocks the ignorance of a man-made idol, right? A man-made idol just sits it on your mantle; it doesn't do anything, right? And God, in multiple passages, says, "You know, there's no life in him. You just made a wooden idol and set it on your fireplace mantle. Really, is that all you got?" I heard one commentator this week say, "You know, even the Toy Story guys could climb down off the mantle, right?" So these mantles are less uh, uh, powerful than Buzz Lightyear. So there you go. You are my battle axe and weapons of war for with you I will break the nation in pieces with you I will destroy kingdoms with you I will break in pieces the horse and its rider with you I will break in pieces the chariot and its rider with you I will also I will break in pieces man and woman with you I will break in pieces old and young with you I will break in pieces the young man and the maiden with you I also I will break in pieces the shepherd and his flock with you I will break in pieces the farmer and his yoke of oxen and with you I will break in pieces governor and rulers and I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight says the Lord and so these verses 20 through 23 you know it talks about with you with you with you it's really a little bit of a play on words because he's talking about the Medes and Persians with you guys I'm going to destroy the Babylonians but also with you the Babylonians I destroyed so many other nations right including the Jewish people And so with you, I brought destruction, but he says, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they've done in your sight, in Zion, in your sight. See, the problem with Babylon, God used Babylon as an instrument for his judgment on Judah and on lots of other nations, but they took it too far. They were ruthless. They were cruel. They, 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 it was like they were disciplining God's children, but they're God's children. And God didn't go for that. And so um, now they're getting uh, sort of, they're going to get repaid. Verse 25. Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. This shall not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, but you shall be desolate forever, says the Lord. And so, again, this speaks of the finality of Babylon. It wasn't accomplished by Cyrus, wasn't accomplished by Alexander the Great. Uh, but over, the, over time, uh, Babylon, the city of Babylon has uh, just sort of uh, fell into uh, decay, and it's, and it's now not been rebuilt. And so, uh, prophetically, some would say it's going to be rebuilt and then fall in an hour. And some will say that's just a system that's going to fall in an hour. So... The point is the time will come when there's not going to be a stone for a foundation and it'll be desolate forever. Verse 27, set up a banner in the land, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations against her, call the kingdoms together against her, Ararat, Minnie, and Ashkenaz, appoint a general against her, cause the horses to come up like the bristling locusts, prepare against her the nations with the the kings of the Medes and its governors and all its riders, all the land of his dominion, and the land will tremble in sorrow. For every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. Again, there's going to be Total desolation. The mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. They have remained in their strongholds. Their might has failed. They became like women. That's not a sexist statement, right? This is written in a time when women were just not considered to be uh, as valiant warriors as men. So there are physical differences between men and women. Are okay with that? they are physical di- I Never mind. There are physical differences between men and women. They have burned for her dwelling places. The bars of her gate are broken. One runner will run to meet another, and one messenger to meet another, to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken on all sides. The passages are blocked. The reeds they have burned with fire, and the men of war are terrified. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. When it's time to thresh her, yet in a little while... And the time of her harvest will come. So the threshing floor was where they winnowed the wheat, like I was talking about earlier. Uh, And it's just, again, Babylon's going to be just completely powerless before God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a monster. He has filled my stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. Let the violence done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, will, will say and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, Jerusalem will say. Now, here's an interesting point I want to highlight. Nebuchadnezzar oppressed the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless king of Babylon. If you read even in, his, in secular history, Nebuchadnezzar was ruthless. He was ruthless. He was probably at least as ruthless as anybody in modern history that you can imagine. Right? And so we hear people talk about even today, man, you know, the world would be a better place if that guy were gone. Right? And people speculate on those kinds of things even today, right? Here's the punchline. Nebuchadnezzar repented. It's well documented in Daniel chapter 4. Many commentators, and I would agree, believe that Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven. That's God's business. But I'd say Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven. And here's the thing. Is there anyone, think about this, is there anyone that's outside the possibility of the grace of God? No. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what? What's that word? Whosoever. It's an important word. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did God know before the foundation of time who the whosoever's would be and who the whosoever's wouldn't be? Yes, he did. And how does that work? It's beyond our brains. But Nebuchadnezzar, I can tell you, was one guy that repented. A ruthless, wicked, evil man repented. So what's that tell you about your neighbor that you think is beyond all hope? That's the point. Don't argue theology with, uh, with me on this one. I mean, you can, right? But what I'm going to say is your neighbor is not beyond hope. That's what I really care about. I don't care about the theology. I care that your neighbor is not, beyond, is, is not outside of the grace of God. Right? Now will your neighbor go to to their death without repenting? Possibly. Do you know? No, you don't. You don't have foreknowledge like God does. Right? And so the point is, even Nebuchadnezzar repented. And I like that example in the scripture. Nebuchadnezzar repented. So don't forget that, please. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. Today it's without an inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions whelps in their excitement. I will prepare their feast. I will make them drunk and they may, that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like lambs with male goats. So uh, this is the Lord's vengeance, and the Lord is serious about his vengeance. He says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And thankfully, God can work that out, right? Vengeance doesn't belong to us. Can I tell you whatever your neighbor did to you? I'm stuck on your neighbor now. Maybe it's somebody else's neighbor. Whatever your neighbor's done to you that's making you bitter or that might tempt you to be bitter, right? Vengeance is up to the Lord. My encouragement to you would be to pray for your neighbor, to try to encourage your neighbor, Right? Try to bless your neighbor and let God deal with the vengeance part. Oh, how Shishak is taken, verse 41. How the praise of the whole earth has seized. How Babylon has become desolate among the nations. The sea has come up over Babylon. That's like a picture that... Uh, most commentators say it was like the Medes and Persians when they came in. It was like a sea that was flooding them. She's covered with a multitude of its waves. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land and a wilderness, a land where no one dwells, through which no son of man passes. I will punish Bel in Babylon, and I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed, and the nations shall not stream to him anymore. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. Yes, the wall of Babylon Shall fall again—a picture of great uh, desolation. The walls, incidentally, historians say the walls around Babylon. I mean, Babylon was a magnificent place. You got to—you got to—you uh, got to appreciate that to really understand what we're talking about. This place being destroyed, right? I, I mentioned last week. Uh, most historians say Babylon was like the size of Chicago, right? The walls around Babylon were wide enough. Different people disagree, but it was wide enough that uh, they had chariot races around the top of the wall, right? It was a magnificent place. And so when you read about these walls, the walls are coming down. We would think the walls are like the Tower of Babel, like nobody can touch our walls. Well, guess what? The strength of man versus the strength of God? Your walls are pretty fragile, right? Right? My people, go out of the midst of her. What do we see? Common theme. My people, go out of the midst of her and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord, and lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land, a rumor that will come in one year, and after that, in another year, a rumor will come, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Can I suggest this? First of all, this is now the third time that we read, uh, get out of there. Uh, The first was in chapter 50, verse 8 last week, and then 51, verse 6 today. And keep in mind, only a remnant returned when Cyrus came and set him free. And there's going to be a temptation in our lives today to not get out of Babylon, to trust the world too much, to rest in the world too much, to settle in a Babylonian system because it just takes too much work to serve the Lord. That's the temptation says, lest your heart faint. You know, getting out of Babylon sometimes takes work. It also, refu- it also requires that we focus on the Lord and rely on the strength of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and not on the modern cultural dialogue of the day or the news feed, right? What's he say here? You know, a rumor's going to come. There's, gonna, there's always rumors. You ever notice this? There's always rumors. There's always a cultural dialogue. There's always the narrative, right? Just stick with the Word. Just stick with the Word. The Word of God is truth. Therefore the days are coming that I will bring judgment on the carved images of Babylon. Her whole land will be ashamed, and her, all her slain shall fall in her midst. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon, for the plunderers shall come to her from the north, says the Lord. As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon the slain of all the earth shall fall. You who have escaped the sword, get away. Get that? You who have escaped the sword, Get away. God, that's God's message to his people. Do not stand still. Remember the Lord afar of off and let Jerusalem come to your mind. What's Jerusalem? Jerusalem is a picture. It's a place. It's a literal place. But to the Jewish people, it was a picture of where we used to go to church. Where we used to worship the Lord. That place of fellowship. Sometimes there are places in our lives that, that are, are sort of a mental uh, focal point of where we serve the Lord. Those are great memories for us. Right? And those are the things that we hang on to. We want to go back to that place. Like Jacob wanted to go back to, to Bethel where he had that dream about the angels coming and going up and down the stairs to heaven, right? God tells his people, Go back to Jerusalem. The sound of a cry comes from Babylon. I'm sorry, I, read, I skipped a verse. You were okay with that, but I'm not. Right? Verse 51. We are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces, for strangers have come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring judgment on her carved images. And throughout all her land, the wounded shall groan, though Babylon were to mount up to heaven, and though she were to fortify the height of her strength, yet from me plunderers would come to her, says the Lord. And so sin brought shame to the Jewish people. Sin always brings shame. When, the Jews, when their temple was desecrated, they were shamed. Verse 54, the sound of a cry comes from Babylon and great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. Because the Lord is plundering Babylon and silencing her proud voice. Though her waves roar like waters and the noise of their voice is uttered because of the plunderer comes against her because the plunderer comes against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men are taken. Every one of their bows is broken, for the Lord is the God of recompense. He will surely repay, and I will make drunk her princes and wise men, her governors and her deputies, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep, a perpetual sleep, and not awake, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken. Those are the walls they had chariot races on, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain, and the nations, because of the fire, they shall be weary. So, uh, pride and great strength, no match for God. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Saraiah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, anybody want to try that? When he went to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, and Saraiah was the quartermaster. So just a historical sort of interlude here. Zedekiah, supposedly, according to historians, went to meet with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon uh, during, the middle, during the midst of his reign and before Jerusalem was conquered. And Jeremiah gave these words to, um, to this guy, Saraiah, who was the brother of Jeremiah's scribe named Baruch. And so, um, and he was, uh, I believe, one of the high priests of that time. So anyway, uh, this is being carried back to Babylon, um, and it'll be an encouragement to the captives that are there. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon, all these words that were written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Saraiah, When you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off, so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Now it shall be, when you finish reading the book, that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, Thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah." So somehow we have the word saved for us, right? But the copy of it that was given to the Jewish people, or given to um, this guy Sariah to read back to the Jewish people in Babylon, he was instructed to throw it in the sea after they read it. So there you go. The end of uh, of the message to Babylon. All right. About ready? Time for me to keep my promise. Chapter fifty-two. This story is repeated in 2 Kings 25, 2 Chronicles 36, and Jeremiah 39. So basically, this chapter is mentioned the fourth time, and so this is why we're going to kind of blow through it, because we've read it three times before. Um, But the interesting thing is, why does God repeat it? I think probably as kind of a PS to remind us God is in control, right? His word is reliable, and it sort of uh, is a cap on... The Jewish people rejected God and their city was destroyed as a result. Verse 1 Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. That would have been his brother. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah till he finally cast them out of his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and his army, came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. They built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled and went out of the city by night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around, and they went by way of the plain. So they besie- the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem for about a year and a half, if you do the math there, and then the people inside were so starved out that they penetrated the city. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they over- so the brave king, what did he do? He ran out the back door, right? The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. They overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and he killed all the princes of Judah and Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah and the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. Now Ezekiel tells us that Zedekiah was going to, before this happened, Ezekiel prophesied that Zedekiah is going to be carried off to Babylon but he's not going to see it. And you read that you're like how does that work? How do you get carried off to Babylon, but yet you don't see Babylon, right? Well, we have the answer right here. They gouged out his eyes at Riblah and then carried him off to Babylon. Now, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the, pre- of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, and the captain of the guard carried away captives, some of the poor people. The rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted the king of Babylon and the rest of craftsmen. Now Nebuzaradan, and the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers." The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts that, and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. So remember they had those big bronze pillars at the outside the temple? They broke, carried them off, broke them off, broke them in pieces, carried them off. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, all the bronze utensils which the with which the priests ministered. The basins, the firepans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, the cups. Whatever was solid gold, whatever was solid silver, the captains of the guard took away. So they just totally pillaged the temple. The two pillars, 1C, the 12 bronze bowls which were under it, and the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all the, these articles was beyond measure. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. So that would have been uh, about 27 feet tall. The measuring line of 12 cubits could measure its circumference, and with so 18 feet circumference. And its thickness was four fingers, it was hollow, a capital of bronze was on it, and the height of one capital was five cubits with a network of pomegranates all around the capital, all of bronze. The second pillar with pomegranates was the same. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides, all the pomegranates all around on the network were 100, okay? So the temple is looted, the temple totally destroyed. And the captains of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land, the 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, and the captain of the guard took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them, put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus, Judah was carried away captive from his own land. These are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year. 3,023 Jews in the 18th year. Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the guard carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. Now, so you remember there were three sort of deportations of captives, okay? And different people have different takes on this, but um, uh, these numbers don't match up with uh, exactly what you see in, I believe, uh, chron- the Chronicles account. So some people say this is a uh, group, of, a sub, sort of a subgroup, maybe the valiant warriors, um, but that's a reference there. Now, it came to pass in the 27th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, In the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodec, king of Babylon, don't name your kids evil Merodec. King of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. So the book ends with a picture, really, of God's grace towards this guy Jehoiachin, who was a captive king from Judah and really uh, kind of a foreshadowing of God's grace to let us know that God is still in control. Even after Jerusalem is taken, God is still in control. God is still able to uh, move upon the hearts of men to exercise grace and mercy uh, towards one another. Now, thus the book of Jeremiah, right? I like Warren Wiersbe gives us some conclusions about Jeremiah that I like. Number one, in difficult days, we need to hear and heed God's Word. The people of, Ju- of Judah and Jerusalem did not heed God's Word. That was their problem. That was really their fundamental problem. What do we have today? We have God's Word. Do we read it like it's a children's story? No. Do we read it like it's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path? Right? Like it's the very Word of God that He gave us? That's how we need to read it and live by it. Number two, what Warren Weersby says, true prophets of God are usually, if not always, persecuted. If you're, if you're going to make a stand for the Lord, sometimes you might be persecuted like Jeremiah was. It's just a reality, but God is still on your side. Number three, true patriotism isn't blind to sin, right? Jeremiah was a patriot. He loved his, he loved his, his nation. He loved his heritage. He loved the Jewish people, right? But he did tell him because of your sin, you know what? This place is going to go down. He called it for what it was. Number four, God's servants occasionally have their own doubts and failings. Jeremiah was, was no different. Number five, the important thing isn't success. It's faithfulness. Was Jeremiah a successful man by any modern standards whatsoever? No. Was he a great evangelist? No. Right? Would you, would you rack up the numbers of his church? as like, man, this guy's really got it together. Or the size of his budget, no. But he was faithful. He was totally faithful. And the greatest reward of ministry is to become like Jesus. Remember Jesus said, who do men say that I am? They said, some people say you remind us of Jeremiah, right? So Jeremiah wasn't necessarily successful, right? But a few centuries later, when Jesus Christ is alive on earth, And they say, hey, who do people say that I am? And they say, you know, some people say you kind of remind us of Jeremiah. Is that better than success? That's way better than success. And then finally, God is king and the nations of the world are under his sovereign control. And can I remind us that that is relevant today? Do we know what's going on in the world? Really? Do we got it all figured out? Can you figure it out by reading uh, news? No. Well, you say, well, it's because I read the wrong, you know, because you read the wrong news channel. I read the XYZ news. Can you still figure it out? No. But God does. Does God know what's going on? Yes, he does. Is God in control? Yes, he is. Is God smarter than we are? Yes, he is. And so he knows all of what's going on, and we have the privilege as individuals to rest in his goodness and to live accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, we thank you that you set us apart from this world. Even though we live in this world, you set us apart that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, according to your grace. And so, Lord, we are truly, truly, genuinely thankful for your grace. And, Lord, we pray that we would live as recipients of your grace, that you would guide us and lead us, that you would cause us to live lives of faithfulness like Jeremiah through the ups and the downs and that our lives will bring glory and honor to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.